With the January 11th meeting between the Canadian Prime Minister and First Nations leaders having come and gone, have the main goals of the Idle No More movement been achieved? With the National Day of Action having been staged and with more protests on the way, where does this situate this unique movement? John Shurto has monitored this and hundreds of Indigenous movements around the world on his news site, intercontinentalcry.org. He will share his insights with us this hour. And in January of 2010, the world community rallied in support of the poor and destitute population of Haiti, ravaged by an earthquake that resulted in the deaths and displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Three years and six billion dollars in foreign aid later, why does it seem that little in the way of recovery has been achieved? Ottawa-based writer, broadcaster, and artist-activist Jean Saint-Ville traveled to Haiti since the earthquake. He'll present his perspectives. On today's program, Indigenous Struggle and Haiti's Challenges. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 17, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. On Wednesday, French soldiers pressed northward into territory in northern Mali occupied by Al-Qaeda-linked militants. Their presumed destination was the town of Diabli, where Islamist militants were said to be blending in with the rest of the population and taking over people's homes while preventing others from leaving. The same group controlling northern Mali reportedly took over a natural gas plant in Algeria, taking dozens hostage and killing two foreign nationals. France's military chief of staff, Admiral Edouard Guillao, told Europe One Television that French infantry would be engaging the militants within hours. French warplanes carried out airstrikes on a strategic camp in Diabli uh, after a road to the town was blocked by rebel vehicles. Umar Uld Hamaha is a leader of the movement for oneness and jihad in West Africa, one of the rebel groups controlling northern Mali. He is also a close associate of Mokhtar Belmokar, who leads the al-Qaeda cell claiming responsibility for the kidnappings in Algeria. Hamaha claimed that a convoy of armored French vehicles attempted to enter Diabli and tried and failed to retake the town. The claim is unconfirmed and denied by a French military spokesman. France has committed helicopter gunships, refueling tankers, surveillance planes, fighter jets, and 800 troops to the former French colony. And that comes to us from the Associated Press. 
thousands of Pakistani citizens have staged a sit-in on the main avenue outside the Pakistani parliament in Islamabad to demand that the rules of the constitution be applied to the upcoming elections and to demand the removal from office of what they see as a corrupt and incompetent political class. The sit-in arose on the heels of a so-called million-man march on Islamabad Monday, led by 61-year-old cleric Tahir ul-Qadri. Qadri is a former elected MP who issued a 600-page fatwa, or religious ruling, against terrorism and suicide bombing and shot to fame last month with a massive rally in the city of Lahore. The arrest Tuesday of the Prime Minister, ordered by the Supreme Court, have bolstered Qadri's supporters while confirming the fears of critics that a military or judicial plot to topple the government is in the offing. Many Pakistanis are fed up with five years of coalition governance led by the Pakistan People's Party, which has presided over a surge in terrorism, outbreaks of sectarian violence, and a collapsing economy. Qadri's anti-politics message, which has resonated with the people, has been complemented by the organizational muscle of Minhaj ul Quran, or MQI. MQI has provided security, mobile toilets, rations, and tents for the crowd. That comes to us from the UK Guardian. A National Day of Action Wednesday afternoon saw Idle No More protesters stop via passenger traffic between Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa and slow down traffic on rail lines and major highways in Manitoba, New Brunswick, and Ontario. Other activities, including rallies, possible blockades, and prayer circles were planned by organizers in order to bring to attention changes in the Conservative Omnibus Budget Bill C-45, which the movement argues directly impacts on First Nations. Clayton Thomas Muller, the Tar Sands campaigner with the Indigenous Environmental Network, explained, quote, the complete gutting of all environmental approval, regulatory, and enforcement mechanisms in Canada mean that the reassertion of Aboriginal and treaty rights are the last best hope to protect both First Nations and Canadians' water, air, and soil from being poisoned forever by big oil and mining corporations. That comes to us from the CBC. John Shurto is a Mohawk and an Indigenous activist. His website, intercontinentalcry.org, which has been on the web for the last nine years, has focused on Indigenous people's struggles, not just in Canada, but around the world. And it is in that context that we'd like to take the discussion around Idle No More, uh, which has taken hold of the Indigenous community and resonated across the country and around the world. Thank you for joining us, uh, John Shurto. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, I just wanted to maybe get a bit of an update. There was a meeting at, at last on January 11th. There was a meeting uh, between uh, some First Nations leaders and the Prime Minister. Uh, the Governor General wasn't present, as had been requested by uh, Chief Spence. And uh, there were a lot of voices that were raised uh, like within the grassroots and even some chiefs uh, about the meeting. Uh, could I get your thoughts on uh, your the aftermath of that meeting in terms of uh, Idle No More and where things sit right now? Okay, well, um, it's actually a pretty complex question because there's so much has been happening on, on both sides of the proverbial fence here, both on, among First Nations, um, amidst the AFN, and, you know, on, 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 on the side of Canada, you know, and the media, in fact. Um, I think that the, uh, the meeting failed 
uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, unfortunately, you know, with the with the position that the AFN was in, being a federally funded uh, lobby group for chiefs, uh, it, it, it was you know at a, at a disadvantage from from the word go. The most important thing that the AFN was there for, on behalf of I don't know more, and that is all First Nations in Canada. Uh, was to deal with uh, Bill C-45 and Bill C-38, the two ominous bills that Canada passed without consulting anyone. Um, and Canada strong-armed the, the, the entire meeting, uh, set the terms for, for everything. It, it decided on its own who, who it would sit with and who it wouldn't. Um, and it, you know, set all the, all the uh, discussion points um, that, uh, that, that they would uh, allow to go forward. Um, and the agreements that it made with with the AFN, uh, I think, uh, uh, were an insult to say the least. The real horror of the meeting last Friday was that it was what happened afterwards. I think um, when Minister Duncan announced Canada um, feels satisfied that it has uh, fulfilled its constitutional obligation to consult First Nations in regards to the bill, and it sees no reason to change anything. Um, which means now, essentially, as far as they're concerned, or as far as they would have us believe, Canada, um, that bill is off the table, um, as well as as, as well as BC 40, uh, Bill C uh, 38. Um, now that was the whole reason, in my view, why AFN was going there. It, it wasn't to to negotiate, uh, you know, a new economic development. Um, of course, it was also going there to um, advance a healthy treaty relationship. You know, a nation-to-nation relationship, or nation-state to indigenous nation um, relationship, um, but it didn't even do that. Um, the only thing Canada really agreed to was to talk about, uh, you know, future meetings, to talk about future meetings, to talk about future meetings. <laughs> you know, to to enhance the relationship, um, and, and of course, these are these are even just words. Um, you know, like if, if 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 even if Canada agrees to you know, start acting responsibly and start implementing the provisions in the treaties as it's required to do by international law, you know, that just doesn't sit with what it's doing with these bills. You know, if it's if it's going to take the, 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 the strong arm and just carry forward as it wants to, you know, regardless, you know, then no matter what it says or does in, 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 in that respect, it's still violating them, you know, because it has to consult everybody. Uh, but it's just, you know, straight up not going to do that now. Um, so the, you know, <laughs> dealing with this is... You know, it's difficult. You know, the, 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 the other sad outcome of the event was the position that um, Canada took uh, right after the meeting. Up until the meeting, uh, Canada uh, would not acknowledge, formally acknowledge, I don't know more. Um, the, only, the, only way, the only time it did was when uh, Duncan referred to it as some social media thing. And, and this was like in, in the middle of December. Um, right after that, uh, Duncan mentioned it at the press conference, and he, you know, uh, in discussing future protests, um, he, you know, uh, mentioned uh, the, the Sarnia blockade uh, uh, briefly and said that um, uh, any future protests will be dealt with um, in that fashion, which is, of course, the injunction that the uh, that the court issued against that blockade. Um, so you know that's 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 Canada's angle, and that's and that's something that Canada is going to continue building on now. It's going to uh, you know c- characterize everybody or continuing protests as, as militants and and hardliners, and unfortunately the media is, is following that suit. Uh, in fact, like five minutes after Duncan said that, the CBC you know characterized the continuing protesters on on Friday as militants and hardliners. Those are the exact words they they used. You know, and then there's rumors now that. Uh, 
you know, more court action is being considered uh, against anybody who decides to set up a set up a blockade. So, you know, that's that's that angle. And then there's the I don't know more itself, which is you know in in an uproar over over AFN. Uh, sorry, yeah, over uh, the actions of the AFN and uh, you know many members within the organization are also you know up up in arms over what happened. Um, you know, many didn't agree with the meeting. Didn't uh, um, you know they didn't agree with AFN's decisions. Um, you know, even le- leading up to to the meeting, uh, there there were a lot of women and uh, and and leaders, uh, bands and band councils who were uh, you know trying to blockade the meeting and you know screaming at uh, Matthew Kuncom and and everybody else for for even you know entertaining Canada. Um, yes. You know, so that's that have to you know there's there's a bit of a scramble going on lately, um, but it, it's also good i think you know because we're getting a lot of this out, out out in the open now for ourselves um and we're working through it um like i don't know more is here you know we have this you know amazing platform um we have no intention of stopping it so you know all we can do is move forward and how do we do that yeah that's a good and, question like you you when you opened up you were talking about how like this is sort of like a, a very multifaceted question uh, i mean i do identify a number of the like there's the idle no more as a grassroots movement which and it seems like the assembly of first nations uh, just sort of jumped on board that there was chief teresa spence whose congress strike start started after the major events yep. and uh you know so th- it does seem as if there is uh, division uh, among those players as to uh, you know exactly how to go about uh, achieving things or or even what the actual agendas are. So I, I guess I'm just wondering how those entities can somehow uh, come together in, in some sort of unity when th- th- there do seem to be these kind of divergent tendencies. If- well, uh, by listening to the grassroots. Mm. Uh, like it's it's hard I know because because like there's a lot of people in that all the more including uh, Chief Spence and the and and the organizers and many others including the AFN who don't necessarily agree with blockades for example um, but it's also well known especially from my position as somebody who's researched you know the global indigenous movement for the past nine years more than that um, the blockades are an esen- are, are an essential action you know they're they're an act of desperation but they're also it's like it's a it's a literal last line of defense like it's the only thing that we can do to get governments to listen because you know simply protesting and saying hey look at us canada hell hey help us canada or hey help us bangladesh you know for the indigenous peoples in that country you know that doesn't work mm. yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm glad you you're bringing that up and I just look before we sort of leap off into that like wider uh, the 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 international reality of indigenous struggles and I know you've said uh, like even on your website there's something like 500 uh, indigenous people struggles taking place right now mm. now but. The importance that I'm hearing from a lot of the non-native population, and even some here in Canada, is this idea that well, we've got we we, we can't alienate the the wider public, and um, I mean I think that's one of the the reasons it's being brought forward against things like economic blockades because we want to reach out to that wider uh, public. What, what would you say in the face of that? How important is it to uh, to 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 gain the uh, uh, support and understanding of the uh, other people with whom indigenous people share this land. Well, it's 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 absolutely important, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it's also true that solidarity works both ways, and it, it's important for Canadians to understand, you know, why 
somebody wants to take a blockade? Why all these problems exist? Why is Chief Spence taking hunger strike? Hunger strike? You know, it's not a simple answer. We're talking about you know over 200 years of you know constant conflict. You know, on on the social, economic, political, uh, physical level against First Nations because of Canada's policies under the Indian Act. Just for uh, one quick example, um, right now in Canada there are 117 First Nations under a drinking water advisory. So 117, that 117 communities that don't have drinking water, and Canada doesn't supply the necessary funds to make that water available. Um, now that's only like one example, but there's a, you know, there's a very complicated uh, bureaucratic system in place that makes sure First Nations don't get the funds they need to provide water. Like for example, in 2008, there were 102 First Nations under drinking water advisory. So you know, four years, you know, the situation's only gotten worse. And that's just water. You know, it's the same thing with housing, health, education, uh, pollution on reserve. Um, not to mention the you know endless line of corporations that are trying to get access to to uh, to the land, um, and the economic tactics that Canada uses against First Nations, like all the funding cuts, which is like uh, which is practically a you know a cold war, uh, you know an, um, an act of attrition against First Nations to make them even more economically vulnerable. One of the things that uh, came up during the um, uh, the messaging around Idle No More and Chief Spence's uh, hunger strike was this idea of uh, corruption on, uh, on First Nations reserves. Uh, that, that seems to be one of the major messages that uh, has uh, uh, distracted uh, the media and much of the public and the idea that, well, the, the Native people should you know, get their own act together before they start making appeal to the government. And it seems to have uh, shaken uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the sympathy for Chief Spence herself with this audit that was uh, leaked uh, just days before the, the planned meeting. So I, I wonder if you could comment on that uh, whole issue, because since that's such a been a major talking point in the media in the, the week leading up to the AFN uh, meeting. Uh, how do you uh, address that point of uh, the, uh, you know, the, the points raised by that audit? Okay, well, um, first I, I think... Uh it's important to note that the, the audit uh, goes back to 2006 uh, when Chief Spence didn't actually uh, become uh, chief of, of the uh, Attawapiskat until 2010. Um, now, the, the, the main point of the audit is that there were 409 transactions that, quote-unquote, lacked proper documentation. Um, only about 30 of those were conducted during Chief Spence watch. Um, now, to understand what that means, we have to um, take um, the Indian and Northern Affairs Canada into context. Um, the INAC sets up First Nations to fail. Uh, and it's grossly inefficient and, in, and, and inadequate, uh, particularly when it comes to providing reserves with the funds it needs for basic services. Um, for instance, uh, reserves don't get all the, all the money they need for, for basic services. Uh, they basically have to choose uh, between, for example, water and housing. Um, yeah, um, <coughs> uh, funding also has to be renewed e each year, which makes long-term planning you know, almost completely impossible. Um, say, for example, that um, a First Nation needs a new water system, which will cause which will cost five billion uh, five million dollars, and they have to uh, provide water uh, for the community for the interim until this new water system is completed. So it'll cost one point five million, and they also, for example, have a housing crisis, and so they need another another five million for that. So then, you know, INAC will say, okay, well, we'll give you nine hundred thousand dollars. So then the First Nation is, is forced to choose how they want to allocate that money. 
And on, on, on top of on top of that, uh, it also takes a very long time for First Nations to actually get access to the money that the government allocates them. You know, it, it can take uh, half a year or more. Um, so what First Nations will often do is, you know, turn to their banks, uh, which all which already happen to have say ten million dollars in there for for other services, and they'll use that money, you know, in, in the interim while they wait, um, you know, to provide water or to you know start start the building process for houses. If they don't do that, then they go without water. Um, so that's what the uh, undocumented or undocumented transactions are essentially, because uh, like this is this is a like this is hardly news. This is this is the way INAC works. That's um, it's always been the case. Um, now, considering that, using the example of water, uh, there are right now. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, I mentioned earlier that there's so many reserves already under drinking water advisory. Housing is another big problem which I think really puts things into perspective. Um, in 2011, the AFN noted that reserves need 85,000 new houses to accommodate the current population. Um, the AF, our INAC only provides enough funds for 2,000 houses a year. So to provide enough housing for everybody that exists in Canada right now, First Nations, it's going to take 40 more years just for the current population. And that's like the general context of, of, of what First Nations are, are, are dealing with. And only in regards to you know, funding. You know, um, Sheila Fraser, the former Auditor General of Canada, uh, talked about this at length and year after year. And you know, her her, her pleas, um, you know, were continuously ignored by the media and by the government. Uh, most recently, in 2011, she, she she noted these these specific problems, these these uh, fundamental inadequacies of the uh, of the uh, Indian Northern Affairs Canada. Um, so you know, that's and and that is in in the heart the real scandal. You know the 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 fact that you know um, uh, INAC keeps a boot on the neck of First Nations, uh, not allowing them to, uh, not giving them opportunities for economic self-sufficiency or even just basic security, food security and economic security. Remembering too that you know the cost of food in in, in the north is disgustingly enormous. I just I just you know posted a message on on Facebook about it. Um, you know uh, a round of a round of food that would cost us here in Winnipeg thirty bucks. In 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 Attawapiska, it costs 108 bucks. It's a farce, and, and it's you know an absolute tragedy that that the media you know started assaulting Chief Spence after that, um, just looking for any reason to 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 harm her and, and to insult her, and just feeding this 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 ugly this ugly beast that um, you know that Canada was 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 more than happy to promote. How fair is it then to to talk about things like nepotism and corruption uh, on reserves? Well. It's fair, and you know there's certainly issues, and there are, you know, some bank councils out there that are, you know, making uh, pretty, pretty, pretty impressive uh, incomes. Like I don't think it's Canada's right to uh, to stick its nose into that. It's up to the community, because um, because it is a it, it is it is an internal issue. Um, like uh, we wouldn't expect China to intervene over corruption in in Canada's government. Like if uh, Paul Martin and friends go on a you know all expense paid trip to uh, play around a golf with. Uh, uh, former Prime Minister Howard in Australia, which which happened, um, you know, we wouldn't expect China to do that. It would be an internal issue, and and it was dealt with internally, even though nothing actually happened in regards to that. But it's the same thing with with reserves. Like it's it's, it's certainly something that needs to be uh, issued. But if we're going to be talking about, you know, crises and, and and problems and scandals, you know, let's let's keep the most serious stuff at the top, and and deal with it on a you know priority basis. Yeah. Start starting with INAC. <laughs>
it, it seems as if a lot of Canadians would understand uh, sanctions against South Africa or the, the boycott divestment sanctions directed at Israel. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it comes to economic blockades here in Canada, they're saying, well, wait, actually, they made their point, so they, they should just uh, satisfy themselves with the, the meetings that have taken place. But that doesn't work. What does that do? You mm-hmm. know, meetings to talk about meetings, like what happened on Friday. That's what happens. You know, and, and you know, consider, too, that it took over 200 actions around the world, including 17 blockades in Canada uh, and a couple in the U.S., <laughs> to get, just to get that meeting degree about talking about meetings you know like there's a lot uh, a lot of problems here and you know there we don't have options you know we can't first nations can't go to the international court um, if Canada says well you're just gonna have to accept what we give us even if it you know destroys your culture you know then too bad for you you know mm-hmm. we're gonna give you what we're gonna give you and that's the end of the discussion unless you want to give us your land rights in which case we'll help you even more um, but that, of course, you know, uh, undermines the whole point. You know, it, it, it's like asking you to uh, sacrifice your house so so you can have a cup of water. Um, you know, it's it's beyond unreasonable. You've uh, authored the uh, the ebook uh, "People, Land, Truth." Yeah, uh, marking eight years of internet intercontinental cry, marking eight years of independent journalism, and uh, you go through like. You know, around the world, uh, you know the the various struggles, many of them very successful. Uh, well, why don't you maybe take us through some of the more uh, um, successful uh, stories of of resistance and how they got about how how they were able to achieve their aims and maybe what Idle No More could learn from that uh, analysis. Okay, um, I also wanted to show in that I also just uh, produced Indigenous Struggles 2012. Um, I just published that one a couple weeks ago. And that's a general overview of the uh, events of, of 300 events in 2012, including victories um, that, that, that Indigenous peoples earned. Um, I guess, you know, like one of the most impressive strategies I find is, the, uh, is in, or in South America, uh, you know, just throughout South America, where Indigenous peoples will, will physically reclaim land. Um, because, you know, in, in most of the governments around the world have the same kind of um, uh, policies in place that, that that we have here in Canada, you know, where it's just this extensive protracted process, uh, you know, and you just basically have to wait. And in many cases, in in uh, like in Brazil, there's uh, the uh, uh, Guarani peoples who are you know living in roadside camps under tarps, waiting for lands because they were evicted in the 60s. So instead of waiting and waiting and waiting, they go onto the land and they reclaim it. Um, now that often results in, in very uh, violent actions on part of the people who now hold the land as, as private property, you know, including death threats, murders, you know, the burning of, 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 of the villages and a whole bunch of other horrid stuff. But um, it ultimately results in victory in the, in the government providing that it's reasonable and, 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 you know, and can actually act in a responsible way. The government will give in um, and, and support these, these populations. Um, one thing that I was impressed by, even though the uh, the effort failed was the effort of the uh, NASA peoples in Colombia, um, who have been you know trapped in a battle between FARC guerrillas, other paramilitary organizations, and the Colombian government, and that's the the heart of the drug war. Um, the other heart of it being in Mexico, but um, you know with, with the situation that's in Colombia, with you know hundred, with dozens and dozens of leaders killed throughout 2012, and hundreds of others murdered, you know hundreds of death threats, and, and over a thousand people displaced. 
um, you know, and the situation only getting worse, NASA decided to take NASA peoples decided to take matters into their own hands. You know, they went in, they went into FARC bases. They took out all the all the weapons and they, you know, took them off their land. Um, they went onto a Colombian military base. They, they 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 captured the soldiers, you know, the government soldiers, and they f- physically picked them up and removed them. You know, and said enough. You know, you know, we're not going to put up with this childish insanity anymore. You're killing us. You're using us. You know, you're using our children as a uh, as as navigators through through minefields. You know, this is this is done now, and you know, <laughs> and that's what they did. Uh, of course, the you know Colombian government and FARC both said, "Oh no, it's not." You know, we're going to do this on on our own terms. But they're they're also now FARC and and the Colombian governments are talking about peace, and it seems to be sincere. You know, they seem to be making a genuine effort to, you know, bring an end to this to this horrid war that the indigenous peoples of of Colombia have been have been caught in. You know, that have brought you know 24 nations to the brink of 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 extinction. Um, mm. So, and you know, the, the NASA stand, and many other indigenous peoples in the region too, the Awa, and and the list goes on. You know, their efforts and their stand and their rights and their integrity have been a large part of that, even though it's not being acknowledged by anybody. You know, also the fact that they've they've, that they've been victimized and, and used continuously by all by all the warring parties. Um, yeah. yeah. So, John, it seems to me that, uh, as with other struggles, uh, one one of the differences between uh, places in Latin America and uh, uh, Africa, as opposed to uh, North America, is the uh, in here in North America, there's the strength of the propaganda apparatus, the the media, and that that's uh, one of the hazards that has to be navigated. So, I, I'm wondering uh, if you have any thoughts about how the movement can survive that uh, particular uh, impediment. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, it's keeping an eye on the uh, the issues and done, and not letting anybody, whether it's a corporation or a government or or a, or a media company, uh, to distract everybody and really come to terms with with what exactly their strategy is and what exactly their goals are. Um, like, for example, there's a, a general strategy that I like to refer to that that that, that puts the uh, puts things into perspective for me, and I, I like when when I whenever I see a government decision in any respect around the world, I always look for this um, the colonial grand strategy, uh, which is to deny uh, sorry deny delay deceive disrupt destroy exploit or neutralize. Um, so in, in in every move the government makes, I look for whether or not one of those goals can be are are being achieved. You know if if a certain uh, decision is is you know, undermining the movement. In, in what way does it undermine it? You know, it's it's something to to keep our eyes um, focused on. Another thing I think that can strengthen our movements incredibly, especially in dealing with propaganda, is understanding logical fallacies, uh, because those are like the biggest tool that, that governments use. Uh, and you know, we all use them every day, and we don't even realize it. In fact, I just used one. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's like the the, the concept: you're either with us or or you're with the terrorists. Uh-huh. You know, which is you know repulsive repulsive claim, you know. But it's 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 you know if you're a native, you're a drunk, mm-hmm. you know. And just the list goes on. There's a, there's a billion other examples and different other kinds of of, um, uh, of fallacies. Even even attacking attacking the messenger for the message, you know, which is which distracts away from the message. Like uh, what's happening with Chief Spence, you know, attacking her character, 
you know, and you know, trying to trying to discredit her when and ignoring the issues completely. Um, and this is the same thing that happens all over the world. That particular strategy, you know, governments go bend over backwards to to discredit leaders. You know, if uh, and if that doesn't work, they they actually try to assassinate them in many cases, especially in places like Colombia and the, and the Philippines. But uh, you know, the, the 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 biggest tool that they use is to that governments use is to uh, just to discredit movements and to you know, promote discord and to you know create opportunities to. Uh, so that the government or the corporation, for example, can um, carry their uh, their project or, or their agenda forward. I know that the I think it's the FBI in the United States uh, came up with something called COINTEL Pro, which yeah. is uh, you know a standard way by which they break up these sorts of grassroots movements. Uh, mm-hmm. are, you know, are there any other elements uh, that that you see coming to, to the fore? Uh, you know, beyond that sort of control of uh, the information, control of the message, and we well, are, they're basically all talking about conquer, divide and conquer, right? Sure. Um, well, this uh, defendersoftheland.org, um, defenders of the land is a you know a broad coalition of First Nations in Canada who are devoted to. Uh, while defending the land against uh, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, industrial projects. They've been highlighting the fact, and so has um, uh, the media co-op, reminding us that uh, CSIS does have an active uh, campaign aimed at First Nations in the country. And uh, it's it's COINTELPRO for Canada. I don't know about any subversive activities, unlike uh, unlike uh, COINTELPRO, which is... Uh, which is uh, uh, one of the main things that they were so well known for. I don't know what's happening here, including you know infiltration and. Uh, but there 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 is widespread widespread monitoring in Canada. Uh, maybe they're you know spying on everybody, mm-hmm. like uh, you know hiding in the bushes. <laughs> so all, yeah. So you're saying that oh, there's surveil surveillance of all the the the, the oh, key that's leaders. Oh, yeah. that's been going on in Canada for. Um, I think that was that was that came about during the the first day of action, 2007 around there. Um, but the yeah, another curious thing is that that was that program started under Harper, and it was uh, specifically or primarily meant in uh, for because of um, to protect economic interests, and to um, and they've actually been reporting directly to uh, to two mining companies. Um, you know, to the extractive companies and, and tar sands companies, the information that they find on companies who, on you know, groups and organizations who may be opposed to their project, like uh, you know, Suncor and Syncrude and Shell and BP and everybody else in the tar sands. You know, they're reporting directly to these companies. You know, they're they're handing them over information. They're they're, according to uh, a document that uh, I believe Tim Groves wrote um, several months ago on the Media Co-op. Uh, the, these companies are invited to the meetings. They're not allowed to uh, write anything down, but they're told point blank, you know, information um, that that may or may not uh, uh, impact uh, their ability to uh, to continue to, you know, raid the land. Um, so, like this is this is happening, and it's it's fairly significant. But uh, uh, I don't know to what scale they're they're, they're working on. You know, I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to find that out, um, but it's it's worth considering too. Um, but it's not really that big a deal, I think, because whether or not they're you know infiltrating us or undermining us or trying to divide us and you know putting certain words into certain people's mouths, um, you know, the goal of I don't know more and the struggle for indigenous rights in Canada remains the same. The goals remain the same. The problems remain the same. Um, so. 
you know, I don't pay it any mind. Is there any potential for uh, Idle No More to, to go the way of Occupy Wall Street, which uh, seems to have been uh, diminished uh, over the last year? Yeah, um, no, I don't think so. It's, of course, possible. I don't want to discount that, but we also have to consider that, um, you know, Idle No More didn't have, you know, the necessary tools to, to thrive and, and to grow and to become something sustainable. They tried their best, and, 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 and I hope that the uh, that, that the youths that led that movement will continue to work on that and build something that 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 has roots you know something that's that you know is that focuses on the long term like uh, Jay Tabor one of the uh, uh, contributing authors of, of IC and also a member of the uh, Center for World Indigenous Studies uh, often pointed out that um, they need to focus on providing healthy services much like the Black Panthers did um, to the population, like like creating uh, uh, info shops, you know, in you know, uh, uh, renting out buildings and just allowing people to come in for free, and then uh, um, answering questions for people about what's going on, about the history of the economic situation in in, in the U.S. You know, they needed to build and not just react and 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 resist and and put on a show and have a and have a happy fun time, you know, camping out in a, in front of some some you know ugly government building. You know, and that's one thing that Idle More has that, I, that Occupy didn't, and that the Arab Spring didn't, um, is you know deep roots, focusing on something much more than just getting a government uh, to change its position. It, it's also Idle More is also being directed within ourselves, you know, to you know reclaim um, our dignity and our land, and uh, you know to be able to live self-sustaining, healthy, um, fulfilling lives. So are you? Uh optimistic then that idle no more will prevail over this very autocratic harper government i am and uh you know even even if it changes if it changes shapes even if you know idle no more becomes quote unquote the uh, indigenous nationhood movement um you know which is i think the core is something that has to come about i think that's what it has to grow into you know not just a protest movement but a, a nationhood movement um, especially if we are to actually build a nation-to-nation relationship, because that also works two ways, like solidarity. You know, we also have to be, we also have to have the political power to be able to, you know, uh, force Canada to to sit in the mirror, so to speak, um, rather than to 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 dictate the terms of of the relationship unilaterally. You know, we have to be in a solid position for that, and nationhood is is, is the way to go about that. And I think it's only a matter of time before before that develops. I've been watching very closely what everybody's been saying, and the, you know that's the that's the uh, general underlying consensus, especially among the more educated folks like Russell Diabo and uh, Gage Alfred, and you know so many other good minds out there. Um, yeah, okay. it's going it's going good. Well, the, the, despite divisions, sorry. <laughs> um, well, John uh, Shirto, it's it's really been a, a pleasure to to hear your uh, perspectives on this uh, unique movement. Uh, I want to thank you very much for sharing them with us. No problem. So, John Shirto, he has run Interna- Intercontinental Cry, uh, essential news and film on the world's indigenous peoples. And uh, if you'd like to contribute to Inter- Intercontinental Cry, you can just email info at intercontinentalcry.org. Jean Saint-Ville is a writer and artist activist uh, within the global peace and social justice movement. Thank you very much for joining us, Jean Saint-Ville. Thank you for inviting me. 
Okay, so we're talking about uh, Haiti uh, on the after the uh, third anniversary of the uh, earthquake, which uh, ravaged that island country of 10 million people. Uh, first of all, I was wondering, based on uh, what you yourself have uh, uh, researched and, and witnessed, uh, what, what is your sense of the current situation three years later? I think there's a, a bit of uh, disappointment, uh, awakening, uh, assessment. All of this is happening at the same time. Um, and um, this is exemplified also by some um, movement on the international front, especially with Canada, uh, making some statements that could confuse the public that is not aware of the details. I'm specifically talking about uh, the recent announcement by the minister, the Canadian minister Fantino, about aid to Haiti. When three years after the earthquake, it's becoming clear there hasn't been aid to Haiti. There's been uh, money circulated in the name of Haiti, uh, but um, it is not Haitians who've been managing the funds yet three years after the earthquake, when it is painfully evident to everyone that there has not been rebuilding in Haiti. Uh, we see uh, some of the um, uh, people who've been involved in the mess that we have uh, down in Haiti today uh, trying to distance themselves or to pretend not to be among the, deci uh, the decision makers. Yeah, I believe that, uh, I mean, there were uh, so many donations from uh, Canadians, uh, Americans, and people in Western Europe. Uh, basically, they were believed that their donations were going to be used to help people who were destitute and devastated by the, uh, by the earthquake. And, um, you know, that, like, did that aid money get used for the things that uh, people believe they were going to be used for, like uh, uh, housing and uh, you know, medical aid and that's a, that sort of thing? Well, the numbers, if you look at them uh, from a number of reports, uh, one of them is the Center for Economic Research um, uh, Policy and Research that came out uh, last year, you would see that uh, some of the money, uh, the, the one for emergency response, uh, that was used immediately after the earthquake in, uh, you know, perishable goods, uh, food, water, have been used on the ground, because that's what uh, was uh, uh, specifically uh, needed for, to, for people to survive. But... Um, the pledges that were made at the uh, meeting in New York, March 31st, 2010, were to the uh, tune of $10 billion. Um, that did not materialize, first of all, in terms of the amount of money that was eventually collected. Uh, it was much, uh, um, uh, nearly half of that was in fact collected uh, compared to the pledges. And when it was used, that money, uh, when you look at the, the, the way that it was dispersed and the organizations that used it, and we were saying that from the time that this meeting was taking place, that 
if the paradigm changes and for the magnitude of the earthquake and, and that disaster, it causes a radical shift in the way the aid system operates in countries like Haiti, then there is hope that uh, a portion of that money might be used properly. Uh, unfortunately, even that cautious hope did not turn out to be uh, the reality. Um, uh, and just a couple of numbers to exemplify that, of the $6.4 billion that was eventually spent or collected in the name of Haiti, uh, there is uh, only $302 million that um, was uh, that ever featured in the Haitian budget. In fact, uh, less than 1% of all the money spent uh, was uh, spent through uh, the Haitian government uh, or Haitian organizations. So the idea that this was going to be helping the country to rebuild, to, to develop capacity so that, for instance, the next time there is a disaster, whether it is an earthquake or, uh, you know, a storm, that, for instance, the Haitian population could rely on something like the Haitian Red Cross, for instance, to mobilize first aid and rescue teams. That doesn't uh, exist. It did not happen. Most of the money, 99% of it, was effectively given to international organizations and governments who use it on themselves in the name of Haiti. So this was essentially not so much, <clears throat> this wasn't so much a, um, a benefit for the poor and destitute of Haiti. It was mainly, uh, by the numbers, a, a fundraiser for these international institutions and governments. Indeed. In fact, the American Red Cross had a very uh, difficult time trying to explain uh, how they used the $486 million that uh, they collected. Uh, in the name of Haiti. In fact, they received, the, the American Red Cross itself received more money from all of these donations than the Haitian government itself. Uh, that's just one organization. And it, you can look at, you know, the Canadian Red Cross, you could look at the International Red Cross, you could look at a number of organizations, Oxfam. Uh, they, uh, of course, release... Uh, documents that explain that they've done this, you know, built a school here, a school there. But in terms of uh, results on the ground for the Haitian people, that, that deals specifically with the fact that people have lost um, everything they possessed in the earthquake, including the house where they were living, etc. You don't see um, the, uh, the evidence that the money was used. For instance, uh, if you just take a look at housing, uh, there were, uh, you know, uh, very amazing pledges made in terms of projects. So some houses were marked red, saying that they need to be demolished, and others were marked yellow, 146,000 of them, saying that they need to be restored. Well, um, Two years afterwards, uh, more than two years afterwards, I mean, there's 18,000 out of the 146,000 uh, that were uh, indeed repaired. And so 
the and, and why that is, um, why is it so slow? There will be all kinds of uh, explanations for that, but if you just take a look at the number of organizations that are involved uh, and just imagine the overhead uh, that is involved here, the many workers that are all coming from the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, who are getting paid high dollars to do jobs that Haitians could do, uh, you can understand exactly why the money most of the times never even left the so-called donor country. So when it comes to private contractors, that's uh, another situation where uh, the money basically stays in the country. So uh, 67.6% of all the contracts that were uh, awarded between uh, 2010 and 2012 for the rebuilding went to uh, Washington, D.C.-based companies. Just this one area of Washington, D.C. got 68% of, of the contracts, of all the contracts. So, um, obviously, um, uh, you, you can understand why uh, a few months ago, there were uh, some voices within the Haitian system that were part of the uh, committee for uh, the rebuilding of Haiti that uh, raised their voice to say that they're not making any decisions there. This is the committee that was headed by former U.S. President Bill Clinton and uh, the Haitian uh, um, former prime minister who was uh, co-presiding with Bill Clinton. Uh, and... Um, you know, the contracts were being decided, and um, most of the contracts were going to Dominican firms, uh, American firms. Uh, but in terms of uh, results on the ground, uh, seeing uh, the cleanup and then the rebuilding happening, it was painfully slow. It, in fact, most of it has not happened. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of these companies have already collected uh, large sums of money. Uh, that committee headed by Bill Clinton has recently been just disbanded. The reality is, from the very beginning, uh, Haitians raised their voices to say that it is absolutely ridiculous that funds for the rebuilding of Haiti would be managed by Bill Clinton. Uh, there is no qualification that's makes Bill Clinton appropriate to to do that. Out, out of 10 million Haitians inside of Haiti and about 4 million of us outside, they couldn't find, you know, Haitians uh, trustworthy to, to manage the funds. And this is just one example that is uh, showing what the real problem is with the way uh, uh, the, the whole... Uh, rebuilding of Haiti after the earthquake was approached. That is, it's um, it's a mindset that um, the uh, United States, France, and Canada, and Europe, uh, they can organize themselves to manage the country uh, without the Haitians having any say in it. Mm -hmm. and, and as you know, this is happening in the context of a specific political context where Haitians are uh, essentially not running Haiti since 2004 when uh, uh, it was 
decided by foreign powers that it was, was best for Haitians not to be running the country. So when the earthquake happened, uh, there was no Haitian government with its own budget and, and independent decision-making uh, to, uh, to speak of because the coup had already undone uh, Haiti's uh, very expensive investment in, in building democracy. And so, and at the same time, the international players that are actually calling the shots in Haiti are not, because officially they're not in charge. Uh, but in reality, uh, they are making all the decisions without any accountability. I wonder, just one more quick comment. Uh, coming on top of those uh, um, dynamics of the uh, the coup and then the earthquake, I'm wondering about the, the cholera outbreak uh, later that year and, and what uh, how, how that fit into this whole framework yeah first of all uh, there is no direct link between the earthquake and the cholera uh, sometimes uh, in news reports there seems to be a, a you know a link there but there is none it's not because the earthquake happened that cholera outbreak followed the cholera outbreak, with all the studies that were conducted, uh, one of them by Dr. Piaou, who is a French uh, epidemiologist, who went down there at uh, uh, the request of the Haitian government, and then later on the UN did its own study, all point to the same cause for the outbreak. That is, the UN troops uh, that were stationed in Mirbalet, uh, which is a town near a river, um, uh, uh, La Miel, which is tributary to a largest river on, on, on the island called La Tibonite, they were contaminated with fecal matter from a UN base that was nearby. And that's, uh, that was around uh, September, October. And the first death started to occur in October 2010. And between then and now, uh, there has been oh, nearly 8,000 uh, deaths, uh, Haitians, who have died of cholera, and several hundred thousands uh, that have been contaminated. And a specific feature of uh, this epidemic is that there's not one single Haitian of middle class or rich class, and there's not a single foreigner who has died of cholera. Cholera is easily treatable. Uh, it's a matter of having access to drinking water uh, and quick treatment. The reason why so many Haitians have lost their lives is that, first of all, the United Nations have wasted a lot of time trying to pretend that they are not responsible, and they still have not admitted that uh, uh, they have caused the cholera. And all of the studies have shown that cholera has been absent from Haiti and there is not any recent or, you know, for the past hundred years, even more, uh, knowledge of cholera on the island. And so uh, what is happening here is that the foreign troops that were brought in Haiti under the pretense that the Haitian population was at risk and needed to be protected have actually caused the death of thousands. And to this day, there has not been 
any acknowledgement, let alone reparations paid to the families of the victims. And we would add that the presence of the UN troops in Haiti is illegal. There is not uh, any legal provision for the UN Charter for a presence of that tro- those troops in Haiti. Uh, there has not been any war in Haiti. Uh, there are countries that have greater situations of, of, of unrest. I mean, all around the neighborhood you can look for them and you can find. Uh, and there's no UN troops there. Uh, but in Haiti, they deployed UN troops because the United States, uh, under George Bush at the time, uh, and Canada when it was Prime Minister Paul Martin at the time, and Jacques Chirac in France, they understood full well that by implementing the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, that is to remove a popularly elected president from power because they didn't like his policies, so they overthrew him, and they knew that by doing so, they, they will be popular um, resistance against that coup. And so that's why they deployed the foreign troops in large numbers, and there was a massive campaign of repression in the poor neighborhoods where there was strong support for that popular government. Um, Jean Savelle, I think I'm going to have to leave it there, but I, I want to thank you very much for that uh, uh, analysis and assessment of the uh, uh, post-coup, post-earthquake uh, Haiti. Jean Saville is an artist, activist uh, within the global peace and social justice movement. His website is www.godisnotwhite.com You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering stations across the country. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca to leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>